0: Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory visit jlc-accounting.com and by tap into tv original video programming covering topics of interest in new jersey new york and beyond visit tapintotv.net now here's your host brian brodeur gordon thanks for joining
1: me today and uh, we got a lot to talk about i'm thrilled you're here looking forward to it brian thank you so What I really want to get to right off the bat is you've been around the broadcast media industry and multimedia industry, frankly, for a number of years. You've seen a lot of changes. You and I were talking offline recently about how media is being produced with better technology, newer technology, but with fewer people. Can you tell me a little bit about your ideas about that, your views on that? We've
2: had a chance to watch a rapid evolution that makes it possible to do so much more. Digital technology has changed everything. Everything can be turned into bits and bytes and transmitted in a variety of ways. And what used to weigh tons and take multitudes can be done by one person. What used to be the province of people who had particular training and experience and a shared set of standards is now democratized for better or worse. Everyone knows how to shoot video now. Everyone can be their own news source. The downsides are obvious and many without gatekeepers, without filters, phony stuff gets out there Parading as news when it's either strictly opinion or strictly fantasy, and it spreads like wildfire. People who can do the basics are now competing with people with years and years of experience. It's tougher out there. It also leads to challenges like this one. When a crew would be sent out by a local news operation, and there would be a reporter gathering facts and writing the story, and a shooter gathering the pictures, setting up the lighting and the sound, whatever. The reporter was able to focus on their job in a way that's a lot harder now when they're expected to be doing the shooting as well. To the bottom line, it looks like there should be fewer people out there because each one of them can do more, but I think the quality suffers.
1: So I'm gonna just take a little left turn on your point we're recording this for a podcast and i was listening to the new york times daily podcast actually this morning we're recording this on wednesday uh, september 27th of 2017 and today's new york times podcast was about i believe it's twin falls where some fake news was created and went let's not say viral but it was picked up easily and easily disseminated by a lot of different people from social media and it went all the way up the food chain to other digital sources like Drudge Report and like Breitbart and made it to some other broadcast outlets and really caught fire. And the story ended up being really 90% misrepresentation. and. The facts of the story couldn't be corroborated because it involved a crime that involved a minor, several minors, and so the details couldn't be publicly told. And a little kernel of easily created, quote, fake news was disseminated, and it quickly gained momentum and has caused real problems leading to the FBI being involved and terroristic threats being created against the local politicians and all because of incorrect information that was easily disseminated. Does my description of that story, does that mirror what you're talking about? Is that the subtext or the not the obvious text of what you're talking about? Well, once you step
2: outside the narrow corridors of the mainstream media, the better mainstream media, you enter a world where facts become fuzzed and and sometimes downright absent. There is a business model. I think of it as the ha-ha made you look model,
1: mm.
2: where it's all a matter of how can you get people to click. Sometimes it's with outrageous stories, whether true or not. And sometimes it's by putting a headline that doesn't match the content.
1: That's interesting. Can you elaborate on that or give us an example, even if it's a hypothetical, of how a headline, and of course, there's a term for some of this, which is clickbait, right? Clickbait, absolutely. Yeah, can you give us an example of how that might look? And I mean to a casual listener, a casual observer of media, how might that present itself? Well, I'll give you the first thing that comes to mind, which is something I see all the time
2: now. You'll see a picture of a celebrity and the headline will be, people you had no idea were dead. And it's a picture of someone you sure thought was alive, and they are, but they'll get people to click. And of course, the first click doesn't even bring you to that person's photo. It brings you to the start of a slideshow with 25 frames that require you to see 800 ads over the course of a few seconds. And in the end, what can you do about it? You've been cheated of part of your time and, and part of your attention, but that's what they're selling and they'll sell it however they can.
1: And I'm assuming that the return on investment there for the, <laughs> what's the better way to put it? The goal of the producer of that content is for people to see and or click ads Well, you know, that's always
2: been the business plan of advertiser-supported media. Whether it's the New York Times or now their website or the local TV news, it's we want to make you look. But the difference now is that instead of having a smaller number of outlets whose goals included return visits, return purchases, return subscriptions, return viewing of their newscast, which requires some credibility. People aren't going to watch a program that is repeatedly found to mislead. They're not going to buy subscriptions to a paper that lies. But the way it's presented online now, you don't know what you're clicking
1: on until you've clicked. This is interesting. Preparing for our conversation today, I was really looking at your history in media, and you know, you have quite a background and have seen a lot of things. And I find that our conversation now is steering right into honestly what I want to talk to you about is politics, right? And I'd like to hear what you think about facts mattering and how clearly we're in an era where our president states very loudly and vociferously incorrect things, non-factual things. And let's not even say our president, let's say politicians in general, there seems to be a trend that facts don't matter, that facts are being able to be broadcast and they're not factual. What do you think about that? How have we got there? I've just been watching Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary, and there's a section in there where Walter Cronkite steps up and he plants his flag, you know, in the ground saying, what are we doing? And really, as a trusted media figure, gives what is relatively an opinion perspective. I have not
2: seen that episode of the Vietnam series. I'm, I'm kind of bracing for the long time commitment that takes, but it looks like that would be a worthy one. But since you brought up the Walter Cronkite point and most of my professional career was at CBS News. Thank you. So I want to point out that what Walter Cronkite said about the war when he had concluded that things could not, that they were not going to get any better and that the honorable thing was to call an end to it and, you know, do the best we can. Mm -hmm. This came not because partisans had come to his office and convinced him. He had gone to Vietnam and spent, I forget how long it was, was it a couple of weeks, touring and researching and reporting firsthand. He was not getting his story through the mouthpieces of the Pentagon, which were always pointing to victory just around the corner. He went to find out on the ground what the situation was. And it was only after that and presenting that in an objective factual manner that he paused and pointed out that this reporter has come to this conclusion. It's a rare thing for him. If every day he were telling his opinion on this subject and that subject, his role would have completely changed. But he had earned a reputation over decades of being a
1: reliable reporter first and foremost. And this is in the era of major news broadcasts being only three channels.
2: That's correct.
1: And what morning shows there were, they were not a major
2: presence. It was the evening news. That's when the nation would gather around their TVs and watch one of the three channels. Most of all, it was NBC and CBS. ABC wasn't a substantial presence until later.
1: Well, let me jump in here for a second. I'd like your perspective on Let's look what happened yesterday, as we're seeing, you know, in our social media a little bit. You know, our president has a, a rally in Alabama ahead of the special primary election, and he brings up Senator John McCain, who is stricken with cancer, a war hero, Republican senator for years from Arizona. I think generally regarded as a heroic figure, or at least a stand-up person in the Senate, with a long history whether you agree with him as a Republican or not, whatever. But in bringing him up divisively in this campaign rally, Senator McCain is booed. And based on that, MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, was it yesterday morning or the day before, had you know sort of lost his cool or had kind of a moment and let it rip about, not about President Trump, but about people who are booing Senator McCain. And his point was, who raised you? You know, who Mm -hmm. who are you and you have no character? And he really kind of went off and lost his cool. So my question is, you know, that's fine. People may be sitting watching this on digital media, say Facebook or YouTube, or seeing it on broadcast cable, MSNBC. And, you know, my perspective on this is there's two camps let's say three camps. There's the one camp of, yeah, Joe, you're right. How dare they boo John McCain? There's the other camp that is, what are you talking about? You know, John McCain, he voted down that healthcare bill and he gave it the thumbs down and he's a low life. I don't care if he was beaten. I don't care if he's got cancer. Boo him, yay. And then there's kind of that middle ground who may go either way. It's just like any election in our country, you know, the the left, the right, and the independent. So, My question for you is, how did we get there? Can you give me your thoughts on that? We went from Walter Cronkite, the trusted voice, and certainly with that moment regarding Vietnam, and this goes back to the assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas, where Cronkite breaks the news and tears up a little bit. Famous moment of media, obviously. Give me your thoughts on that. You know, how do we get from that to today? Well, we have a painful partisanship in the
2: country now, which is not unprecedented. The partisan split in the media is certainly not unprecedented, but like everyone in my generation, I grew up with an unusual time frame where most of the mainstream media was trying to play it pretty much down the middle, a little left of center, perhaps, but not far when the networks were covering Vietnam protests, they were giving equal attention to uh, Nixon's law and order message. You heard both sides. There was an earlier era in American journalism and certainly in most countries where newspapers would take a very explicit partisan line and you'd buy a left-wing paper, you'd buy a right-wing paper, depending on your personal predilections. In the days of three networks, everyone tried to play pretty much to the middle. Now with the proliferation of networks, you can choose one that fits your mental state, your political tilt. Add to that the web where they can slice it finer and finer. You would not get the kind of stories that headline Breitbart News on the CBS Evening News. And similarly, there are far left-wing websites, if that's your preference. Well, along came Trump, who was masterful at playing the wedge. He decided that he didn't need to get every voter. He felt there were enough that reflected his particular worldview, that thanks to his particular personality, he just was able to whip them up and craft his message to what the crowd would respond to. You will never see him drop the rallies because he needs those to find out what are the lines that are gonna get me applause. And we'll go with those. You mentioned the Alabama rally, where out of the blue, he felt it necessary to take after professional athletes, happened to be black athletes. And he was talking to an exclusively white audience. White Southern Alabama audience. And managed to get them whipped up. They loved him, but of course, didn't go with the candidate he was there to support. Right. You may now have seen now all of Trump's tweets supporting Luther Strange have now been deleted.
1: (laughs) I didn't know that.
2: Wow. It's as if it didn't happen.
1: Oh, man. I wanted to tell you a quick story about two encounters I had with a fine journalist named Katie Turr. Katie Turr is a broadcast journalist in the NBC family of networks. Yes,
2: she reports for NBC. She reports for MSNBC. Right, and she uh, She'd been a foreign the- correspondent, but was suddenly assigned to go cover Trump's announcement. You know, he'll be in the campaign for a few weeks, and then he'll be done with it, and that's what she expected. Got it. Go ahead, please. Well, I encountered her twice in real life. Once was middle of last year. I was being taken on a tour of the NBC facilities by a friend of a friend. And we ran into Katie Tur. The campaign was on. She was covering it. She had been assigned to Donald Trump from day one. And my friend mentioned something about Trump to her. And she said, get used to saying President Trump because he's going to win. And when was well, this? This was middle of last year. It was the summer of 2016
1: when no one was saying that. So, meaning he was already the nominee then? I think he was the nominee by but the then. Conventions but were still the Polls,
2: But the polls said he doesn't have a chance. Well. Wow. And that was the consensus. To hear someone who was that deeply into the coverage gave me two theories, either she sees his supporters so clearly that she knows something I don't. Or she spends so much time with him that maybe she's the victim of Stockholm syndrome and you know, has been sucked in and is buying something she shouldn't buy. But I didn't discount it. I didn't have a chance to quiz her on it. But I wound up running into her again just a few weeks ago. I direct some audiobooks now. And it turns out that she was in the same studio that I was recording the end of her book. So I waited till she was taking a break. I introduced myself, told her about our encounter the previous year. And I said, when did you first think that he was going to win this thing? She said it was when he went after John McCain, war hero, and suffered no consequences. She said if he can do that without consequence, he can go after a woman. He can do whatever he wants. By extension, he may have been right about being able to go out onto Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and lose no support.
1: We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting. Bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV. Original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net.
1: I want to pivot this point for a moment. Let me know your thoughts on this analysis. Media used to be, at one time, this external force, this external thing that looked into or covered, quote-unquote, politics or news. And it now is fully 100%, not just the story, but more than that. It is actually, you know, the world. It is the soup that we're all in. It is the universe that all of this is existing in, meaning everything from the president tweeting to, you know, Russians using Facebook, which appears clearly has happened, obviously. And even to the extent of being able to pick and choose what, quote, news you want to consume. So in the idea that news is no longer, or media is no longer this other thing, that it is the thing, what's your perspective on that? It goes back to what
2: technology has enabled. Everyone can be their own newspaper publisher. Everyone can be their own television broadcaster. Everyone can be their own radio station even podcast it en- <laughs> it's amazing i mean now it feels like i'm the only one without their own podcast so i guess i'll have to start one i don't I, know I endorse how that. there are, i don't know how there are enough people for there to be a real audience for every podcast that's out there there have to be some that no one listens to but maybe no one will ever know it enables everyone to fine-tune their tastes to only what they want to hear, to inhabit their own custom-tailored bubble chamber. And Facebook and Google will tailor your searches and the ads that you see to what they know about you, and they know a lot about you. And they will help you fine-tune this bubble chamber so that you're never hearing anything but what you want to hear. Boy, is that dangerous for a society. Everyone gets just the news that they agree with, which includes a healthy dose of your opponents are your enemy. Right. Divisive. Right. Oh, it's horrible. You may have seen the charts that show how the population in Congress, for instance, there used to be a big overlap between the most conservative Democrats and the most liberal Republicans. And there was a meeting ground there was an overlap in which things got done. And you watch how the graph has changed over the years. The Democrats have moved a little to the left. The Republicans moved a lot to the right to the point where there's no middle ground. Almost every week, you're learning about someone who was trying to be a more moderate Republican and they're saying, I'm not running for reelection. Well, Bob Corker, Tennessee. Well, Bob Corker is the latest, not the first. And for those who choose to stick it out, they know that they're likely to be primaried by people who are more like Roy Moore.
1: So um, I fear it's going to get worse. Well, you know, what you and I are talking about, uh, I mean, people consume news and information at various levels. Some people are very invested in news and politics and the media, the topics that we're talking about right now. There are other people that you know, they don't have the bandwidth, or don't choose to have that bandwidth in their daily lives. And so the deep dive that we're talking about, and you and I are kind of name dropping some of these people, and certainly, like your Katie story, you have access to this media personality, this media reporter. And there are a lot of people who are out there who have no connection to this. And if they maybe see a headline that rolls up in Facebook or on the news, they don't have as deep of a connection to some of these details. And, and maybe, let's put it this way, they're not paying attention as carefully as others might. So let's do some future vision for a moment.
2: Can I jump in for just a, a, a second? I'm, I, yeah. I want to hark back to something that we learned in journalism 100 years ago. It's the notion of the opinion leader. Yeah. That for most people, there is not a direct connection from what the newsmaker says to what they hear and the intermediaries are not just the media, but they're trusted voices. And it may be someone in their community they know, it may be a friend or a relative that they trust to watch more of the news and read more of the news and let them know what they should be thinking and what they should be reading and listening to. I think that role is gradually becoming less important. And I'd be curious to know what the academics who study these things think. But there's more and more of a direct flow. Twitter has its share of the blame. You can read on any given day exactly what words this person or that person says, and you'll follow the people who agree with what you think or inflame you in a
1: way that feels good. I'm sorry, I I interrupted you, so please continue. Well, my point is this. You and I can go back and forth on these details, and it's riveting for me. I mean, this is very important stuff to me as a media producer, and clearly you're steeped in this. You have a history in this perspective, and you're involved at a very informed level currently. Not everybody is that, and that's okay. I'm not going to judge my neighbor that way. I like to share a story sometimes that a... uh, wife of a very close friend of mine once we were walking down the street together going to dinner and we started talking about this was post 9-11 it was a couple years after the 2001 attack and we started talking a little bit about 9-11 and the politics of it and not just rah-rah america let's bomb the heck out of them you know it, it wasn't that it was a little bit more of what's president bush doing and back and forth and my friend's wife stopped us and said, guys, you know, I just can't think of this. I just can't think about it. Can we not talk about this? And that's a particular incident. I'm not saying everybody's like this or even a group of people are like this. That's not what I'm saying. My point is not everyone is thinking about how complex the media landscape has become and the effect that all of these different moving parts have on our daily lives. So what I want to ask you, is give me your future vision. You're informed, you have a history in media, you see where we've come from, connected to, as you mentioned, your history with CBS, Walter Cronkite, this was quote, the gold standard. And now where we are today, and things have changed, the pointed question I guess I have for you, and you can take this in any direction you want, when does this change? When do citizens, break from the tribalism, I think, as you said? When do citizens start realizing that they are existing in this tribalism? Or do they know now and don't care? What's the future hold? I
2: always take this topic back to the nature of human beings. We are a tribal species. Our brains are wired to look around us and figure out the people who have the greatest commonality of genes with us who look like us, who share our interests. And it's through that lens that we decide who to socialize with, who to mate with, so that we can do all the better in passing on our own genes. That's how we are physically wired. And it's really hard to see how we pull back from that when almost every opportunity we have makes us more tribal.
1: Right. Self-fulfilling prophecy in a way.
2: Well, I fear it is to the point where something's got to give. I don't know what that something will be. I don't know whether it starts with a nuclear confrontation with North Korea. I don't know whether it starts with civil insurrection within the United States. I don't know whether it's going to be response to another terror attack. I think we're looking at a bleak, immediate future. And unfortunately, a lot of today's reality point toward locking in the worst of it to make it more likely that we'll keep the current party in control, whether the public votes against it or not. More people voted for Democratic House members, but most of the winners are Republicans. More people, as everyone knows, voted for Hillary Clinton, but she's not the president of the United States. Between Republicans making the rules in Congress and Republican in the White House and what will likely become an even more conservative Supreme Court,
1: I fear bad news for a good long time to come. So we're confronted by a lot of challenges as the media landscape has changed so much. We're confronted with a lot of challenges. But I think there's other opportunities. I mean, the more media outlets and the more people that are disseminating information, there is the opportunity for positive change. What are your thoughts on that? I think there are opportunities,
2: and I'm delighted to see that there is an upsurge in campaigns for civil society and to push back against the extremes. I hope that they're able to generate enough momentum to push back against forces that are both powerful and well-funded. That's where the hope lies. It's
1: people working with people. One of our sayings here at ACM Studios and my production team is, it's always about people. And technology comes and goes, but at the end of the day, we have to stay focused on people. And I do think... You know, if we talk about a piece of media, quote, Facebook or quote, social media or fake news, there are still people behind it. Even if there's a foreign bot farm or whatever, there needs to be humans involved in these efforts. And I guess we're left to whether that's good or bad. You know, hopefully the bad actors in these spaces will be outnumbered by the good actors. Everyone has their motivation. Right. And for some people, the
2: motivation is strictly the bottom line. What brings me more money? You've certainly seen stories about people who have made a handsome career out of generating fake news. doesn't matter to them which side they're writing it for. They've found that it's more profitable to write fake news that insults the left. There are some people who are doing it for country. Unfortunately, a lot of them are doing it for... Russia rather than the US. There are some people who place party above country. I fear we're seeing a lot of that now. Most people I suspect are just looking out for themselves and their families. And the bottom line is, do I have a job? Does it pay enough to keep the wolf from the door? Is it enough to uh, keep us out of trouble if God forbid uh, there's an illness or an accident? And I think a lot of what you have been seeing on the political sphere reflects the fact that in decades, there are a lot of people who have made no advance economically, that all of the benefits from the last 40 years of economic policy have gone to the very wealthiest. What will we see when this new tax plan comes out? Is it going to really be a way to drive more money to the very wealthiest? My guess is yes, I hope not.
1: Well, going back to the Alabama rally with President Trump, and he throws out this red meat unexpectedly about NFL players kneeling down, etc., made it really a patriotic issue. And some people say, well, he has used this moment through these channels, both Twitter and, say, mainstream media, to inflame what is really a distraction from other things going on and back to my point about being in the universe of media that we're in this echo chamber that media is also a weapon is a tool and at the same time we have victims of the hurricanes that News is coming out now seemingly that there's islands in very bad shape and nobody's paying attention to this and the help is not happening. Now, that's what I'm saying, right? That's the news that I've heard. Maybe I'm in my own echo chamber and that's something I have to spend time to make sure that I'm knowing the facts. We've covered a lot of ground. I'd like to invite you back for part two of this podcast, which would get into uh, some of your history and perspective on broadcast media and and the changing landscape. We've covered a lot of contemporary perspective, a lot of contemporary issues, but you've got a lot of stories to tell about your 40 plus years in the media industry. So for today, I thank you for joining me and I look forward to part two. Me too. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been a production of East Main Media hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Kong and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com and thanks for listening.